Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they could not stop. Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. And they probably should stop it. Because to celebrate being able to go out to the pub again here in Britain, this entire podcast is that most regrettable of things, a booze special. Drink and art. That's our topic today. Now, I think I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, otherwise known as Waldy. But I've been drinking so much, I'm no longer sure. In any case, Waldy's such a stupid name. Is that really me? Oh, I have no idea. And what about Bendy? What kind of a name is Bendy? What I do know is what a bendor is. Uh, because a bendor is when you go from pub to pub getting more and more drunk, right? Um, so is that what we're talking about here, Bendy? Hick, 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 hick. Yeah, basically, when I was born, my dad went on a bender. And although he likes to claim that Bendor is an old Grosvenor family name, actually, he was just absolutely drunk when I was born. He was so excited to see me, so I got lumped with the name Bender. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's so true, you know. This is the thing about it, because you have that air about you of a man who's, who's not really in control of the way <laughs> reality goes. Um, and in your case, because you're dealing with art, that's a good thing, isn't it? It's now the moment to tell you, Weldy, that I'm a teetotal. Are you teetotal? Yeah. No, don't tell me that. No, absolutely, yes. You're teetotal? Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm so, you know, I'm so, I just like to take the world so seriously, Wildy. But what I really want to know is now that the lockdown is nearly ending and that art galleries, at least private art galleries and dealerships are open, which did you go to first, a gallery or the pub? I swayed through both of them, as it happens, um, because unlike you, I'm not teetotal. Um, indeed, I, I, I like a drink, unfortunately. Um, but uh, yes, I went to see the uh, the gallery. So, so, so listeners in Australia, um, our two listeners in New Zealand, um, the new guy from Malaysia, our old friend in Tokyo, uh, Keenan in Alaska, and that nice person from, from Nebraska who just wrote to me. All you guys, what you need to know is that Britain has been locked down totally, pubs have been shut, but they've just reopened them all. And they've also reopened the galleries at the same time, thereby making possible this wonderful double bill, right? You get booze, you get art. So I guess I've been around some, some galleries and I went to three or four, I think, on Monday. And normally I would remember, but the pub stops in between confused me. Uh, and it was just... Do you know what? It was, of course, a pleasure and a joy, but it was also a little bit weird. I must confess, it just felt slightly strange. You know, like like I don't know, like like bunking off school or something, and 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 not being where you should be. It was. It felt there's a little note of illegality about it striking me. I thought, if you've got re-entry anxiety, then that's what they're calling it. We're Is all so used it? to being locked down. I think I think there may well have been a such of that. Um, yeah. I'd like to to pretend I was totally insouciant about it, but um, no, I, there was there was a little bit of weirdness. And we did some filming as well for this thing we're doing, and that felt a bit bit, bit weird too. So, uh, in short, it, I think it's going to take a while to get back to the to the normal level for me. But that's because I'm a drinker. But you're a teetotaler, so for yeah. you, it'll just be the same, right, Bendy? Well, I still haven't been further than the, than the co-op, and um, just the other day, for the first time, we actually put our shopping in the fridge without washing it so we're taking it very easy up here you god you always were a risk taker bendy <laughs> you always were a risk taker well thank god because there's plenty of risk taking going to be necessary on this podcast today let me tell you i mean it's rammed to the gills with the uh, crucial art stuff 
coming up soon, there's a, a big interview about Bernini with Lloyd Grossman. Um, now, there's a man who can make a nice sauce, isn't there? Uh, and later on, Bendy, you're back at Sotheby's. I'm in Rome. And we've got a huge pub crawl uh, coming up where we look for the best drinking pictures in art. Uh, and of course, listeners, everything we talk about, all the pictures, all the information, it's all there on the podcast pages of zczfilms.com. So pour yourself a stiff gin, go to zczfilms.com, lie back and enjoy. First, though, it's time to talk some sense. So I'm going to shut up. I'm going to leave this to someone who's capable of doing that. The Interview Bendy, uh, you've been talking to someone sober, haven't you? Uh, who's that and what have you been talking about? Well, Valdi, uh, you and I may think that we're busy enough being art critics and art historians and, in your case, occasionally drinkers. But there are some out there who actually really put us to shame. And Lloyd Grossman is one of them. Uh, a TV presenter, host of the original MasterChef, of course, an entrepreneur, creator of those lovely pasta sauces you mentioned, and also, did you know, a rock guitarist, because he's even played at Glastonbury, which I don't think you've done with the singing art critics. But Lloyd is also, in addition to all those things, a fully qualified art historian with a PhD from Cambridge University. Lloyd's written a new book about the great 17th century sculptor Gian Lorenzo Bernini, and it's called An Elephant in Rome. Bernini, the Pope, and the making of the Eternal City. For those that know Lloyd best for his TV work, I began by asking him how he went from master chef to art historian. Well, I've always had a, a tremendous interest in history and art history. I'm not totally sure what the distinction between the two is, um, largely due to where I grew up in America and, and to my father, because my father, along with Many other members of my family, um, I mean, we were mostly in the art and antiques business. So um, going to museums, uh, looking at historic houses, uh, visiting interesting places, being surrounded by old stuff was just part of my life from childhood. And um, I always, um, you know, at school, I think the, the subject that I was always best in, I was pretty bad at most things, but I was always pretty good at, at history. And, uh, you know, history was, was always going to be my, uh, my discipline. It turned out not to be my profession because I was sidetracked. But throughout, throughout life, um, you know, history has been my, uh, my kind of major driving force, my interest in history and my curiosity about history. So you've written a new book um, about Bernini, the great sculptor. It's called An Elephant in Rome, uh, Bernini, the Pope and the Making of the Eternal City. Um, I think most people, when they think of Bernini, they might think of those wonderful sculptures in the Palazzo Borghese, such as uh, Apollo and Daphne, uh, the Rape of Proserpine and uh, his self-portrait in the guise of David. Um, what what always amazes me about those, Lloyd, is that he was in his early 20s when he made those. And there, when, when it comes to the craft of the sculpture as well, the sort of the sheer how the hell did he do that? Um, when I look at them, my mind can't really compute how he did it. How did he do it? Well, Bernini was really kind of the Mozart of sculpture. I mean, he was an extraordinary prodigy. Um, it, it's hard to tell when he when he produced his first interesting works but it was certainly in childhood 
And then by the time he was an early teen, he was doing, you know, quite plausible, actually better than plausible portrait busts. Uh, by the time he was sort of 15 or 16, he was doing quite serious portrait busts. And then in his early 20s, he did that wonderful series of uh, mythological stroke biblical uh, sculptures for uh, Cardinal Borghese. He was a prodigy in every sense, both in his technical expertise and also his, his conceptual expertise. I, I always like to compare because it, it's, it's helped me. I always like to compare Michelangelo's David with Bernini's David. Yeah. And, you know, we're often told that Michelangelo's David is like, you know, the greatest bit of, of, of sculpture. I look at it and I see, you know, very beautifully, uh, beautifully crafted, uh, very poised uh, depiction of idealized male beauty. And I sort of go, well, yeah, so what's next? Whereas when I look at um, Bernini's David, I see this extraordinary dynamism and energy and excitement and drama and Bernini's David is almost like a, a, a still from, um, from the cinema because Bernini, instead of going for the repose that Michelangelo goes for, Bernini goes for this capturing David at this moment of, of maximum peril when he's about to throw the, the stone that will either kill Goliath or miss. That's quite a big gamble. And um, it's very exciting. It's, it's the excitement that Bernini manages to convey, the excitement, the vivacity, the sexuality, et cetera, et cetera, that he conveys in hard, cold marble is almost unequaled in the history of carving. And do you think his depiction of David in that sort of action man pose was a, a deliberate riposte to the stillness of Michelangelo? Oh, I think absolutely. It was a deliberate repulse to Michelangelo. And, and also it was a real statement about Bernini as a young man in his early 20s, intensely ambitious. I mean, really ambitious. Ambition was not a dirty word in 17th century Italy. Um, Bernini was determined always to, to gamble everything. You know, he, 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 he always through the dice, um, throughout his career. I mean, it was remarkable how he worked for a succession of popes, which was a very high risk strategy because generally, as, as you know, Ben, every new pope got rid of everyone associated with the, with the previous pope. Bernini somehow managed to get the patronage of every single pope throughout his lifetime. That was an extraordinary uh, thing. And it was due to the fact that, A, he was too good to be disregarded, and B, he was very politically skillful. He was a wonderful courtier. Your book, Lloyd, is about uh, Benini's work, basically creating so much of, of Rome that we know today. Uh, in fact, you conclude, I think rightly, that no artist before or since Benini has ever so clearly defined the image of a great city. I suppose in London we don't we have Christopher Wren, but we don't really come close to Benini and Rome. Um, can you tell us, uh, can you set the scene for us and tell us uh, why did Rome in the early 17th century need someone like Benini? Well, there was a, uh, 
There was a slight there was a slight problem with the papacy and the Catholic Church, and this problem was called the Reformation. And the Reformation rather shocked all of all of Europe because suddenly this this new force, both spiritual and political, this new force arrived, and it um, it dealt quite a blow to the the authority and the universality of of the Catholic Church. Um, hence, um, hence the creation of the Council of Trent, which the Catholic Church used to spend years thinking about how are we going to fight back against Protestantism? How are we going to launch this counter-reformation? And an important part of the counter-reformation arsenal or the counter-reformation program was to use all the arts, you know, music, sculpture, architecture, painting, um, to reassert the spiritual authority and authenticity of, of, of Catholicism. Um, and it was very important that Rome should be recreated as the most alluring, seductive, inspirational city in Europe. So this was a, a, a program that was, uh, that was followed by a succession of popes, which also, of course, helped economically because the huge influx of pilgrims to Rome every 25 or 50 years for holy years uh, was a major part of the Roman economy and a major contribution to the coffers of the church. So successive popes were very determined to um, make sure that Rome was the ultimate, as we would call it now, bucket destination. And it happens that um, Bernini's lifetime also coincided with the lifetime of two of the most profligate and um, ambitious popes, namely um, uh, Pope Urban VIII, Barberini, and Pope Alexander VII, Kiji, who were both absolutely determined to beautify and enhance Rome and, and to use that to um, increase increase the prestige and power of the church. So it was a time of incredible opportunity for artists, architects, and, and, and sculptors. And there were many great ones. You know, one thinks of, of, of Borromini in particular, who probably was actually a much better architect than Bernini. But um, Bernini emerged as the man, as the go-to artist for a succession of popes and benefited hugely from their ambitions to make Rome the most desirable city in Europe, a great example of soft power. There's a sort of, there's a happy collision though, isn't there? This moment when uh, the Catholic Church, particularly in Rome, needs great art, and then the arrival of uh, Baroque, uh, which you describe rather nicely as being on the threshold of craziness, which I thought <laughs> was a good expression, I like that. Um, so what did Bernini's take on Baroque um, add to the needs of the Catholic Church? Yes, I mean, Bernini was, you know, has been described as the master of the Baroque and, and he pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and was able to, to make Baroque an extravagantly emotional form of art. Um, Baroque really, you know, goes straight to the gut when it's in when it's in Bernini's hands, and he used every trick in the book to emotionally involve the viewer. 
So one of the most important things or sort of noteworthy things that Bernini did, and, you know, I think it was Wittkauer who first remarked on this, is Bernini very much dissolved the boundaries between architecture and painting and sculpture. And he created this sort of total work of art, you know, like an opera, not surprising the Italians invented opera, Hmm. like an opera. Um, intensely theatrical. And, you know, when I look at one of his greatest works, uh, the Baldacchino, which is the ceremonial canopy over the high altar at at St. Peter's, you look at this thing, which is the largest bronze structure ever built. I think it's 10 stories high, bronze. You look at this thing and you sort of think, well, what the heck is it? Is the piece of sculpture? Is the piece of architecture? Is it bric-a-brac? Is it interior decoration? What the heck is it? And it doesn't matter because whatever it is, it just grabs you and pulls you in Hmm. to extraordinary experience. So the emotional power of the Baroque in Bernini's hands is kind of unequaled. Yeah. And, of course, his most famous... Uh, creations in Rome include things like the Fountain of the Four Rivers in the Piazza Navona uh, and the uh, St. Peter's Square, the colonnade around St. Peter's Square in front of the Basilica of St. Peter's. Um, I was interested to see that some of the popular reaction of the time you describe in your book to these great and extravagant works was crowds uh, going through the streets chanting, uh, pane, pane, non fontane, bread, bread, no more fountains. Um, Rome is, I mean, sometimes when you go around Rome these days, you think, God, could they really fit in another fountain or another church here? Yeah, or the question you also ask is how the heck do they afford it? <laughs> and um, I, I guess it's a, it's a classic example of deficit finance. You know, popes like Alexander VII spent like crazy and then thought, well, my successor will sort it out somehow. <laughs> so it's quite, a, you know, it was quite, a, it was a great system for producing great art. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Bernini was not someone who would be described as cost conscious. No. Well, he did very well, didn't he? I mean, th- th- there can be few artists who have had uh, such financial success. Um, yes. Such a long, a long career. Yes, Bernini, the, like a lot of artists, you know, we like to have this fantasy about artists, you know, only really being interested in art. And that, you know, the only thing that counts is how talented they were. Well, you look at Bernini, who was a supreme talent. There is no question about that. Extraordinarily interested in money. Very interested in money. Um, He also had that attribute, which many successful artists have. He was very good looking. He was very good company. Mm -hmm. He was very, very nice to be around. Um, He knew how to behave himself. and. He had all the social skills that a lot of great artists have, which helped them, which helped them succeed. As I said before, you know, he was a courtier and he was very good at it. Yeah. Yes, Van Dyke is the same, isn't he? A great courtier. Van Dyke, great courtier, cool looking guy. You know, of course he's going to be successful and he could paint. <laughs> Can we talk about um, this, the businessman side of Benigni very briefly? Because um, you do point out in your book, and I think it's important that people remember this these days, especially given current 
um, arguments in the press about uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi, whether or, or it wasn't painted by some workshop assistant. Uh, Bernini relied very heavily on workshop assistants, didn't he? Yes, I mean, Bernini was doing so much work that, you know, he, he employed at one time or another, he employed virtually every sculptor of note in, in Rome. And one of his great skills was uh, his managerial skills. So, for example, I mean, getting the Baldacchino built, it was a colossal undertaking, you know, getting the bronze, getting the castings, figure out how to put it all together, making it stand up, employing the right workmen, et cetera, et cetera. All of these great works of art were hugely collaborative efforts. The, um, the elephant of the Piazza della Minerva, which, you know, is kind of the focal point of the book, required a great amount of teamwork. So, I mean, Bernini designed it. His number one assistant, Ercole Ferrata, mostly carved it. You know, I'm sure Bernini said, you know, as you'd say to a barber, you know, take a bit off the top and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it relied very much on the skill of people like the marble polishers. Then you had to have the team that built the foundations, the people who put the plinths together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, these things were team efforts. Bernini was the mastermind. He was the controlling brain of the whole thing. But he produced so much work that, um, you know, one doesn't really you know, worry, I don't think, about what is strictly an autograph work and what isn't it's you know it's Bernini's conception Bernini's finishing touches uh Bernini's direction and Bernini's ability to use a whole range of other talented people to come up with a fabulous piece well Lloyd that was absolutely fascinating thank you very much for telling us um uh, all about the book and Bernini's role in the creation of Rome I bet you can't wait to get back there I cannot wait to get back there. I'm just waiting for, for Italy to be in a fit state to receive us. <laughs> oh, Bendy, what a fabulous interview. That was really entertaining. I mean, he's, he knows his showbiz, doesn't he, Lloyd? I mean, he might be a, a PhD art historian now, but um, he's still got that little twinkle of MasterChef about him, hasn't he? Very entertaining, I thought. Yes, I really enjoy talking to him about Benini. And and there was lots of stuff we couldn't put in the interview. I mean, I could have talked to him for ages about it. It's a fascinating book, actually, published by Pallas Athene, Golden Elephant in Rome. And uh, I really recommend it. Um, I think it's so interesting to go around Rome. We tend to think of it uh, as, you know, an ancient Roman city. Uh, think of the Romans, but actually uh, quite impressive to think just how much one man in the 17th century uh, Benini actually made his stamp on the city and how much of it we we see and enjoy today mm. yes i mean that's unarguable uh, wherever you go in rome you, there's Bernini, and, and of course the obelisk on the elephant isn't it in front of santa maria sopra minerva that sculpture that's given the book its title i mean what a strange sight that is you know an egyptian obelisk suddenly sitting on the back of an elephant i mean that's a baroque imagination and a half isn't it <laughs> but um i have to say right I have my issues with Bernini. Now, I'm not for one second do I doubt his talent. I mean, you only have to look at any of those, those fantastic statues in the Galleria Borghese, I mean, especially the Apollo and Daphne. I mean, that yeah. takes my breath away as a yeah. feat of carving to make her hands turning into leaves. You know, the story where she basically gets turned into a tree by her dad so that Apollo can't run away with her. 
but the, the way that she's turning into a tree, I mean, what a thing to try and carve. So he's technically absolutely astonishing. Where my issues start is really to do with his profundity or perhaps his lack of it. Now, it was interesting to hear Lloyd talking about the emotion of, of Bernini, because when he says excitement, I get that. When he says emotion, I don't, because I think Bernini is an exciting sculptor. But what's lacking there for me sometimes is, is that kind of religious depth, that, that sense of something really serious and profound being said. Do, do you know what I mean? That, that's, that's the sort of absence in his locker for me. Yeah. Yes, I mean, you know, the uh, the brownest and most shadowy Rembrandt self-portrait can have 50 times as much profundity as one, as one of those Benini sculptures, can't it? But mm. we're dealing with a time when the church, the Catholic Church and the Popes wanted box office. You know, they wanted an excuse to get people to want to go into their churches. Because let's face it, if uh, we do it today, when we walk around Rome, don't we? We think, oh, there'll be lovely treasures in that church. I'll just pop in. And we see church after church. And and that's what they were doing. Only in those days, they, they were putting a little bit more effort into, uh, you know, saving your soul as you went in and perhaps uh, taking a few scoody off you as you went out. Um, so, so I suppose we have to judge that side of Benini within the confines of what the church uh, wanted from him and was paying him to produce. Mm. But then you see, um, if you take another artist who was working in Rome, in fact, a bit, well, of course, a bit earlier, but, but at the same time, you know, during the Baroque era, if you take Caravaggio, who was also doing those things you're talking about. He was also getting people to come into, into churches, and he was also, as it were, taking art off the altar and dumping it right back under your nose in front of people again, in front of reality. See, he does the profound thing. You can look at Caravaggio, and you get a sense of genuine religious awe and genuine understanding of what, of what the message is meant to be the sort of depth the profundity so it is possible to do what you're talking about to be really exciting but also and to be counter-reformational but also just to take it that step further into a realm closer to rembrandt yeah. um, and caravaggio did that and it, yeah. it, it, it to me it just emphasizes what is sort of missing in in, in bernini you know yeah. you've got all those fantastically talented hands no, no question about that yeah. just that that thing missing and of course See, there are stories about him that, that make him out to be a darker character, aren't there, than, than perhaps we sometimes accept. There's that terrible thing with his mistress, isn't he, where he basically gets his servant to, to cut her up, doesn't he? Cut her face up. A horrible story. Do you know about that one? Yes, uh, he, was, um, he was a jilted lover. And as you say, he got his servant to slash her in the face. It was um, really unpleasant. Um, now, well, I don't disagree with you, actually. I think you, you highlight an important point. Um, my only defence of Benini's uh, artistic productions, at least, would be to uh, to go back to the topic of Lloyd's book, actually. Um, so the elephant in Rome that he refers to, as you mentioned, is the, the elephant statue carrying an obelisk in the Piazza della Minerva, just behind the Pantheon in Rome. People will have seen it and walked past it, I'm sure, many times. Um, I suppose the thing is, uh, at that moment, for example, the Pope's had this obsession with putting up obelisks. I mean, there's a whole sort of, you know, there's a there's a there's a thesis there, isn't there? Why um, supposedly celibate popes wanted to put up so many obelisks in Rome? They put up thirteen <laughs> in this moment, um, thirteen ancient Egyptian obelisks that were found in various sort of ruined places in Rome. So, if you were a, a sculptor and architect charged with erecting so many obelisks in Rome, then you've got to come out with something pretty far out, like an elephant to put it on its back, mm. in order to just have uh, make a bit of variety. 
I mean, that is an extraordinary thing, the obelisk on the elephant. I mean, where that came from, heaven only knows. And and, and, and there's no doubt, of course, that he, he had a kind of crazy imagination. And and when he works, I mean, the, the my I think my favourite um, Bernini moment in Rome, well, no, that's not true. There are a couple, but but the, the you know, in Santa Maria della Vittoria, the famous St. Teresa in ecstasy, mm-hmm. um, where St. Teresa has been sculpted in ecstasy. The angel Gabriel has come down to her and he's sort of, he's, pointing an arrow at her, um, the sort of arrow of, of illumination. And what's brilliant about the setup there is that it's all taking place in a side chapel that's got a, a golden window above it, a real window. So this sort of golden stained glass sends the light flooding through and it mixes with the carved light, as it were, the carved marble that Bernini has, has, has produced there. And she's sitting on a cloud. So you've got this impossible thing really of a, of a weightless marble sculpture floating in light and illustrating or evoking this moment of ecstasy where she suddenly realizes how much she's in love with god it is definitely exciting and as everybody always says it's a little bit sexy as well because the ecstasy that that, that we're talking about here um has a naughty air to it doesn't it so he could really do that you know, there's no question about it so um look let's go back to something that lloyd said right just, just to try and clarify this, this thing about sobriety and profundity, he made that comparison between Michelangelo's David, didn't he, and and Bernini's David. Where do you stand on that? What do you think about that? Um, do you know, I sort of don't want to have an either or opinion. Um, you know, generally, I, I do have some sympathy with this slight revulsion to the over the topness that Baroque can sometimes inflict on you. I suppose it's my Protestant upbringing. It's, it's a little bit like all that sort of Baroque gilt and um, and marble flowing everywhere. It's a little bit like a, an over-the-top French cake. You know, there's too much cream and everything, and it's all, it goes all over the place, and you can't really enjoy it when really what we, what you really want is a nice, solid Victoria sponge. You can't beat that, can you? Um, so that's where I think I stand. Uh, I'm not being... Uh, <laughs> Are you sure you haven't been drinking, Bendy? Are you saying that David is a Victoria sponge and that Bernini is a Black Forest Gatto? That seems to be what you've just said to me. I'm talking complete rubbish. Uh, basically, I think I like them both. How about that for, uh, for a cop-out? Oh, a cop-out. See, I marginally prefer the Michelangelo. And I'll tell you why. I know what the Bernini's got going for it. it it's a moment of action. Um, it's, it's instant it's physical, it's twisty, you know, it's got all that Baroque stuff in it. Whereas the Michelangelo is just a bloke standing there, right? But it's so big, the Michelangelo David. You know, it's such a feat of engineering, let alone sculpture, to have made it. And the fact that it's not moving and that it hasn't got that sort of twisty, this is, watch this second of action stuff about it, gives it another kind of nobility and a grace, and a sobriety, and I, I, this might be something to do with just, just my spirit or whatever, but I kind, of, I kind of prefer that. There's a, nobility is the word, there's not much nobility in Bernini, there is in, in Michelangelo's David, so in that comparison, I'm a Michelangelo man. Okay, so when it comes to your art, well, you're actually a bit of a teetotaler. You like it serious and sober. Um, I'll tell you what, the, do you know the real reason I can't give you an opinion on Michelangelo's David? Um, I've uh, never seen it. Oh, dear me. I walked past those queues in Florence so many times I thought, not today, I'll go another time. 
<laughs> well, you need to watch my films then, because I filmed it a few times. It was even in that film the other day that I did about on Sky Television about Michelangelo and the Sistine Ceiling. That had David in it. And there's a very, very good replica of it in, in the square outside the um, Palazzo Vecchio. Uh, it's a perfectly good replica. It's the same size, you know. Yeah. Um, but fair enough, the cues have defeated you there, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna push you on it. And and listen, this is something we can absolutely agree on, Bendy, right? Rome, the pleasures of Rome, of which Bernini, for, you know, Bernini's responsible for a large chunk of that. No, no argument about it. I would die to be able to go to Rome now. And you teetotaler or not, I would force bottles of red wine down you <laughs> to go with the spaghetti al vongole um, and the caprese. Oh, come on, Bendy. Come on, that's, that's, that is the Roman experience. What joys lie ahead of us, don't you think? Yeah, I can't wait to get back there. Uh, well, listen, um, as I said, Rome, you can get a very nice glass of wine there or two glasses or three or four. Why stop there? Let's have six, seven, eight. It's no surprise, I think, to anyone listening to this podcast. First of all, that we're talking absolute rubbish today. And that's, that's the drinking that's done that. <laughs> uh, but also that drinking uh, has actually played a big role in art. People like doing it in real life and artists like painting them doing it. So the question is, who's done it best? The and Oh, Bendy, there you go. This could well be the best ever Waldy and Bendy Awards. Uh, we all love a tip, all apart from you, that is. Um, and art has put a lot of effort into recording our fondness for booze. So um, we have heroically set out to find the best of all these efforts by art. So what we've done is we've done the usual democratic thing. I've come up with most of a short list. You've had your bits and added it on here and there. We're going to find five things that have risen to the top, like cream rising in the milk uh, in our examination of, of great booze in art. And we're going to go through them and then we're going to have a vote at the end. And Taya, the, the producer, she's going to vote as well. And we are going to nail it today. You know, in our drunkard way, we are going to nail what is the best depiction or ev evocation of drinking in art. So I thought we'd start with something we've just been on about, really, which is Caravaggio. Um, Caravaggio was a great painter of boozing, wasn't he? And there's a particularly good example in the Uffizi, I think. Yes, this is his circa 1596 depiction of the young Bacchus. And what a picture it is. It reveals absolutely why Caravaggio first sprang to fame in Rome as a painter of still lives, uh, because we have not only um, the usual lovely, beautiful depictions of baskets of fruit, but we have a decanter with wine glistening in it and the reflection of the glass. Um, and then the glass that the young Bacchus himself is offering towards us has wonderful, it's full of red wine, and it's got the most beautifully depicted ripples as the, as the wine moves about as his hand comes out towards us. Yeah, so Bacchus is the god of wine, right? And and early on in his career, Caravaggio painted a lot of Bacchuses. And they are um, they, they form a kind of group in his work. I mean, there are four or five, six of them, all done for this Cardinal del Monte, who was his great patron at the time when he arrived in Rome. And they're very um, controversial pictures because people have taken them to mean all sorts of things. Um, I mean, because uh, this is a good example, because quite often they feature, well, they do feature um, handsome young men, often in Bacchus-like robes, showing off their shoulders and their chests and their abs. Um, there's uh, a frequent uh, noticing of a homoerotic uh, element to them, which alter these stories about Caravaggio and his sexuality. Um, and they are wonderfully painted, as you say, with these brilliant North, Italian talent for still life that he had. 
the baskets of fruit, the vegetables and things that he had. In this case, they say the glass of wine, you know, all impeccably presented and so real feeling. This is the great Caravaggio thing, the great Caravaggio gift to the Baroque, the sense of, of a real thing. And so his Bacchus is a real person as well. I mean, it's actually his friend or, or his assistant, uh, uh, someone who worked in his studio called Mario Minitti, who appears in several of his paintings, a sort of young boy. What I want to get at here is, okay, so, so you've got this half-naked Bacchus staring at us, quite sort of mournfully. He's holding the glass of wine. There's fruit around him, some of which is rotten. What, what do you really think is the message of this picture? Well, Waldi, I feel like you're inviting me to proffer an opinion, which will then shoot down in flames. Um, when I look at this picture and I see the title, uh, the Bacchus, the fellow in the picture doesn't seem very much like a Greek god to me. He's too young to be divine, um, although he's it, he's offering us a glass of wine. It's very much a picture about an invitation to drink. And I think the way he's sort of... Um, half holding on his clothes, he's sort of semi-naked, that feels like an invitation to probably take off the rest of his clothes. So uh, I do think I sense some of the homoerotic overtones in this, particularly when uh, we remember that the Cardinal Del Monte, well, there were all sorts of accusations at the time that he was also homosexual. Now, we should also bear in mind that that was an accusation that was thrown about to to attack people politically at the time. Um, but I think when you look at the, this picture and the series of young lusties that Caravaggio painted for Del Monte, I I can't help but think there's a sort of homoerotic overtone here. Mm. I think there's certainly a homoerotic overtone. But I also think, and, and this is perhaps I've got a slight advantage in that I've seen quite a few of these Bacchuses, in, not, not just this one in the Uffizi, but several other ones. There's the ones in the Borghese Gallery. I think they're comic. I think they have an ambition to be comic. Mm -hmm. Now, do you remember what a few few podcasts ago we did that painting um, by Vincente Campi called The Ricotta Eaters, yeah. where he's taking the mickey out of um, working class people for eating too much ricotta. That's the tradition that Caravaggio grew up in, that Lombard tradition of realism mixed with sarcasm, if mm -hmm. you like. And all these Bacchuses, you see, the great, so going back to the glass of wine, right? If you look at the glass of wine there, those aren't ripples, those are shakes. And look at the color of his cheeks, right? If you look, if you've got a good reproduction in front of you, his mm -hmm. cheeks are, are red um, in the way that people have red cheeks when they've drunk too much. Mm -hmm. This is an unsteady character, as it were, on the morning after, where you can't even hold your hand properly because it's shaking. Okay. He is suffering from the effects of too much drink. That's right. what he's doing here. And all the symbolism in the picture, it's about this idea of, of a ruined youth. I mean, the people have mentioned the sort of vanitas content, but the, the rotten fruit in front of him, why is, the, why is the pomegranate rotten? Why is the peach gone brown? It's a sort of warning to a decadent Roman society, a kind of comic warning about the dangers of decadence. Mm. And that's both aimed, I think, at the homoerotic element of all that, but also just at the, the sheer sort of indulgent, boozy nature of Roman society. But I think it's got these comic ambitions because this guy does not look like Bacchus. He does look like a bloke he might have found working in the market on a fruit stall, you mm. know. <laughs> and this comic aspect of Caravaggio, which is very explicit in some pictures. If you look at things like the card sharps, 
you know, mm. the other people where people are cheating each other, the gypsies. It's in there in him, this sense of humor. And I think it's forgotten too often. But, but I think this is a, a kind of warning about the dangers of drinking too much, aimed at sort of young, decadent people by another young, decadent person, which is to say Caravaggio himself. Yeah. That's my reading of it. Oh, interesting. And of course, uh, Cardinal Del Monte had the card shops himself. So it yeah. could, could have formed part of a rogues gallery. Yeah, and it's a giggly young man's art because this is, this is the young Caravaggio. But fantastic picture, fantastic picture. I love seeing this in the Uffizi. When you see it in the flesh, it's startling. It's absolutely startling, the uh, the realism of it. But let's move on. I think this is something that you wanted to talk about, and I'm not surprised. It's a brilliant picture. It's by um, Jan Stein, and it's the uh, it's called Beware of Luxury. And it's a sort of full-on Dutch picture full of all sorts of shenanigans. Tell us about that one, Bendy. Oh, now this picture is a, is a real feast. You could spend ages talking about it. It was painted in 1663. It's in the Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna. And we see a, a very rowdy scene in front of us. It's basically a warning about the terrors of drinking too much. So uh, we have before us a very beautiful young woman who's, who's clearly imbibed too much. She's got a jug of drink in her hand. And to her left is a, a, a young amorous fellow who's trying to make advances towards her. Behind him, he has a, a, a preacher uh, reading out uh, verses from the Bible, I presume, but he's paying no attention to them. He's laughing. And then elsewhere in the room, we have a man playing the fiddle, uh, an old lady, again, drunk too much. She's asleep at the table. And in front of her on the table is a, is a beautiful meat pie which is being feasted on by a dog, which has leapt up on the table. And then we've got various children dotted around the place, uh, up to no good. So basically, um, everything goes to ruin when you drink too much. And Steen is telling us to be careful. In fact, he's written on a slate, the bottom, I think it's the bottom left-hand corner in Dutch, but he translates as, in luxury, look out. Mm. Yeah, fabulous. I, I think he's such a, such a, great artist i mean I, I enjoy his work always so much there's always so much to look at and see and notice in a jan stein somebody told me i can't remember where it was now i think it was when i was going around um the Rijksmuseum um once and they were referring to i mean it wasn't this picture it was something similar that the woman who's fallen asleep on the left is the wife and the guy well, because she's fallen asleep, the guy at the front is making advances to the young girl. So in other words, because the woman has fallen asleep and had been drinking too much, her husband's off trying to pick up the uh, the girl at the front. But there's definitely those sorts of dynamics here. And it's a scene of squalor. It, it's a warning to people like me who like drinking too much, mm. or like Taya, our producer, you know, who can't lay off the booze. Mm. It's a warning to these people. This is what can go wrong in your life if you don't show some, some control and some, what I believe should now be known as some bendiness, yeah. which is to say a totalitarian <laughs> drift you know um it's fantastic every detail here is a kind of warning about what happens if you if you have that fifth sixth seventh drink the preacher i love the preacher i mean he's a quaker isn't he you can tell from his hat he's meant to be a quaker and he's got a duck on his shoulder have you seen the duck on his shoulder Yes, the duck. I mean, it's, it's, this is a sort of, this is the heir to Peter Bruegel, isn't it? Um, there's so many little metaphorical allusions. In fact, above the duck is a basket hanging by a thread and the basket has a big sword in it. So it's, it's, oh. the messages couldn't be more obvious. And then uh, above that to the right, there's a, a clock on the wall uh, and a monkey is holding up one of the weights. And that's a warning that, uh, that time, time flies basically when you're having fun, you know, you lose track of time. Another one, as you can see bottom right, there's a pig there coming in. <laughs> the, pig, yeah. um, the pig in his mouth has got the stopper to the beer barrel. 
So uh, he's taken away, all the beer's pouring out. And above the pig, can you see the, I think she's a nun, isn't she? But she's got a basket of roses in her hand. Now, in, in English, we say that we have the expression of casting pearls before swine, which is giving someone an expensive gift that they don't, they can't appreciate. But in Holland, it's it's roses before swine. So that's that's what we see there. This is why art is so great. I mean, you've basically got a novel load of stuff going on in here. This would <laughs> fill a book, wouldn't it? Yes. In another art form, this would be a book because there's so many things happening. But in art, you can just show it all at once and it's all there in one go. I've got, I'll tell you, what, I've got one more question for you. What's that middle, middle ground, top right, resting on the wooden staircase rail? There's something there. That is a, a half-peeled lemon, I think, isn't it? Yeah. It's a lemon, isn't it, with the, the skin peel. Now, think how many still-life paintings you've seen with a, a lemon in them on the edge of the table with the peel coming off. Gin and tonic. What's that about? Apart from gin and tonic. You know, you, I thought you were a teetotaler. Apart okay. from gin and tonic, what's that about? I don't know. Will, pray tell me, Weldy. It's because lemons um, are can be kept for months and months and months um if you um if you just keep them like lemons but the moment you peel them they go off so as soon as you start to un unpeel them the insides can start to go rotten right. they're a symbol of both luxury because the lemons were quite expensive to import um but also this idea of brevity of life you know you've got this thing the moment you start unpeeling and it, it goes it goes moldy so that that's its sort of job in all those dutch still lies to warn us of the the brevity of the good times uh -huh. um so they've got that symbolic meaning well the paradox in in stein's painting is that it's um it's all in good humor i mean the the warning is there but we we don't really have to take it too seriously and we can tell that from stein's own life um he came from a family of brewers and in fact when at times when he couldn't make enough money from being a painter um, he ran a tavern. So there you go. Man after my own heart. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Fabulous painter. Seek him out wherever wherever you can. Well, let's go on to something a little bit more somber then, I think. We're going to go on to a bit of uh, my favourite painter, probably of the 19th century, everybody's favourite painter, uh, Vincent van Gogh. Now, um, he did quite a lot of booze painting. He painted glasses of absinthe. He painted lonely women hunched over there drinking a cafe. But the picture that for me, I mean, it's the opposite of, of the one we've just been looking at, the opposite of the Anstey, in terms of an interior that shows off, if you like, or that emphasizes the bad news about drinking too much. You know, the night cafe in Arles from 1888. I mean, that really captures the sheer grimness of the other end of the story, doesn't it, Bendy? Well, it does and it doesn't. I mean, it does when you sort of look into it and, and begin to understand a little bit more and, and what he was trying to get at. But I, I always think that when I first see this picture, it looks to me like a rather jolly place. It's such a vibrantly colourful, there's a green ceiling and a red wall and it's full of light and there's a pool table and the man, uh, the, the cafe owner seems to be there ready to serve you and it all looks quite accommodating. When you look a little bit closer, you see the, the drunks there for the night hunched over their table and and the colours, uh, as, as Van Gogh said, that those were meant to suggest the emotion of his terrible uh, temperament at the time a, as a result of drinking too much. So uh, it's a picture that really uh, makes you, invites you to think. That's right, yeah. I've forgotten the moment whenever I... If I ever thought it was a happy picture, I've forgotten it. It must have been <laughs> a way back because I've only ever really, and certainly in recent times, seen its melancholy. So yes, this is the night cafe in Arles. This, is, this was a cafe right next to where Van Gogh lived, you know, in the square. Um, next to the yellow house and he probably had a kind of crush on the woman that ran it Marie Genoux 
who also appears in several Van Gogh pictures. But this place was open all night long. Mm-hmm. So it was all the drunks and the, and the prostitutes and the down and outs. Would, this is where they would hang out at night. Um, you can see the clock here. So actually, it says sort of quarter past 12. So it's right, really, there's like a dingy clock on the roof. This is late at night. There's only a few people left. There is a, a chap from the, the cafe itself, the waiter that day, or the cafe owner, next, standing next to the billiard table. But he hasn't bothered picking up the empty glasses. There's empty glasses on the left. He left them on the table. And there's three or four people there. They're just they're sleeping, aren't they? They're so drunk, they've slept. They, they've just fallen asleep at their table, sitting in one corner where there is a, probably Vincent himself, I think, judging by the straw hat, and, and possibly Madame Genou, Marie Genou, and he's trying to desperately hard to talk to her. Um, but the, the, the melancholy of it is, is created by so quite unusual artistic things, I think. Well, first, there's, there's this perspective, right? So the floorboards are rushing crazily into the distance in, a, in an unsettling way. It's got that massively inventive, wonky perspective that just it just doesn't feel quite right. Um, the colour scheme, yeah, he, he, you're, you're so right, um, Bendy. He, he even wrote to a brother that he was he was trying to um, somehow suggest the the terribleness of, of modern life through this clash of green and red. Green and red are contrasting colours. They're not meant to go together. They're kind of direct opposites. So it's like um, it's like almost like a musical ambition to to, to create or suggest discord through this simple colour combination. And then I think what really gets it really spooky is the lighting. So look at those lamps. I think they're gas lamps mm. hanging from the ceiling. They're, they're sort of glowing with a naked, bulby, throbby, darky energy. And they remind me very much of Francis Bacon's light bulbs. You know, in Francis Bacon paintings, the light, these bare light bulbs have that atmosphere of spookiness about them. So... It's, it is a very bleak, lonely picture about late night loneliness, sitting there, nothing to do, life drifting away. For me, definitely one of Van Gogh's real masterpieces. Mm. And uh, didn't he, he gave the picture to the cafe owner in lieu of um, paying for all his drink, didn't he? So um, it has a rather sad ending. Also, it ended, mm-hmm. ended up in the Soviet Union, and then it was one of those pictures that Stalin flogged off for hard cash, which is uh, how it ended up in the States. Amazing. Yeah, thank God it made it back though. Um, yeah, and it hangs in the Fog Art Gallery, isn't it? Yale, um, I think. In Yale, it's got um, because of those colours, it, it it just sings or screams on the wall. It's like a siren. You can't you can't turn it off. Every other picture in that gallery where it hangs is a different colour scheme, and this thing it's like a traffic light or something. You just can't miss it. It's a very powerful thing. Anyway. That's the bad news about drinking. You'll end up all alone in this miserable little cafe um, with just the lights um, blaring at you. So we're moving on. Um, slightly lighter, but, uh, again with a comic tone perhaps, because we're going to go to Hogarth, aren't we? Um, and we're going to talk about these very famous uh, two prints that he made. Although I have to say, I personally want to concentrate on one of them. But there's two. One's called Beer Street. The other one's called Gin Lane. And the Gin Lane is the one, is the one that, 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 that chokes me up. But what are these about then, Bendy? Well, you were supposed to see Beer Street first. And uh, the idea is that in, in Beer Street, Hogarth is presenting a sort of acceptable face of drinking. You know, it's all right to have a beer. It's not too strong. It won't ruin you. A few things might go awry every now and then, but all in good humour. 
And Hogarth, he's always, there's a lot of preacher in Hogarth. If, if he hadn't been a painter, he probably would have been a priest thundering at us from the pulpit. And he was very supportive of a succession of acts to stop people having gin. Now, when I say gin, um, in the mid and early 18th century uh, in England, gin basically meant a lot of spirits. And it wasn't the kind of fancy gin that you can end up paying, you know, 50 quid a bottle for if you really get carried away down the off license. Um, a lot of gin, it was really cheap because it was made of heavily subsidized uh, malt. And sometimes it was flavored with turpentine. So um, there was a real problem. It was called the gin craze. There was a real social problem with poverty um, exacerbated by huge amounts of gin drinking. In fact, there were thousands of gin shops in London. Uh, because in those days, if you wanted to sell beer, you had to basically have a pub. You had to offer uh, food with it, but you could just sell gin um, from a small shop. So Hogarth um, was very much wanting to warn against the perils of gin. And that's why uh, Gin Lane, which is the, the pendant to Beer Street, um, is full of terrible warnings of what will happen to you if you drink too much gin. Hmm. And of course, gin was thought or seen as a foreign import, wasn't it, as well, whereas beer was British. Mm. So beer is just, oh, good old beer. You've got a nice pub and you sit there and you relax with your nice British stomach hanging out and it's all good news, isn't it? But the gin is the bit that um, has got all the nasty stuff going on. Yes, yeah, so they had the big problem um, in London in particular, but it basically in, in working class areas all over Britain. Uh, of this sudden gin craze and then people just turned you know became alcoholics very quickly there are some horrible details in this print i mean let's move on from beer street which is relatively sort of gentle um gin lane is a cruel and, and terrifying image so right at the front there's this poor woman slumped on the on the stairs she's obviously an alcoholic her dress has come apart she's some kind of prostitute because she's got syphilis sores going all the way down her leg um and she's been holding a baby but she's so drunk that she just lets the baby drop and the baby's going to drop into this dark hole where it's going to die and break its head open so it's an absolute scene of squalor and neglect uh, but all over the picture there are these little reminders of how terrible damage that drinking too much can do i mean there's a bloke just on the parapet on the left he's got a dog next to him and he's taken the dog's bone and he's eating it so the dogs can't get at the bone because he's eating it um and there's a porn sign pawnbroker sign there's a pawnbroker doing very 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 well because everybody's pawning all their stuff in order to buy more gin it's a horrible indictment of alcoholism um powerful work but also again you know a bit like caravaggio way back uh, in this list there's an air of comedy about it isn't there because hogarth couldn't help but have a sort of mocking tone but it's a wonderful image i mean it, it's hard to imagine I mean, i'm feeling a bit bad about going to the pub yesterday looking at this <laughs> you know i mean it, it it does make you feel terrible straight away doesn't it yes i'm feeling very holier than now looking at this um you know i would have been with hogarth um, in the corner being teetotal or perhaps having a very weak beer. Um, yeah. But the it's quite interesting social moment. So this print was produced in 1751. There was a gin act in 1751, and that was the final act, which basically uh, managed to put the price up so much that you, you couldn't buy so much gin so cheaply. And uh, Hogarth, uh, he specifically produced these two prints with a new way he, he made them as cheaply as he could in order to sell them for just a shilling now a shilling uh, was probably too much for the for the very poorest but um he wanted people to see in as much um detail as possible the the perils of drinking too much gin 
Um, mm. Quite an unusual moment, really, in British art and history. Mm. Do you know where this is in London, where, where this is all taking place, this horrible squalor? Um, it's supposed to be the parish of St Giles, I think, um, mm. which is one of the, the poorest parts of London. It's... That's right. It was. It was. It is the parish of St Giles, a notoriously squalid. Um, there's, a, there's an area called the Rookery, which was. I think. I think it was um, um, thought to be the most squalid area in the whole of Britain. You know, everybody was drunk. The prostitutes. There was sewage swishing through the streets. Terrible. But but you know what that is. If you know London at all, can you see in the background? There's a church. You could just see a church sort of tower with a figure standing right at the top of it. So there's like a figure and this stepped church tower. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that is? I don't know. That's that's St. George Bloomsbury. So it's a Hawksmoor church, right? Uh-huh. So just next to the British Museum. It's a slightly spooky Hawksmoor church. So we are talking about, okay, uh, overseas listeners, um, our, our 39 listeners in America. We are talking about the end of Oxford Street top of Shaftesbury Avenue, round about the bottom of Tottenham Court Road. So it's, it's if you know where Centre Point is, that's pretty much where this is set, around mm. where Centre Point is today. So if you're coming to London now, and you go down Oxford Street, go to the end of it, and then you'll think to yourself, wow, this, is, this used to be so terrible, um, this part of London. But it's not anymore, of course. No. Um, and just in case we were in any doubt as to the meaning of the print, there's a little uh, ditty at the bottom. I'll just quote the first bit. Uh, Jin, cursed fiend, with fury fraught, makes human race a prey. It enters by a deadly draught and steals our life away. So be careful, everybody. As the lockdown ends, keep off the gin. Oh, God, Bendy, you put me off my beer there straight away. So, in fact, as the next picture, which, um, I mean, it's a wonderful picture, but... I don't think it's really good news, is it, either? Um, we're talking about... We had to deal with Rubens at some point in this because I don't, he's probably painted more drunken people than any other artist. <laughs> and certainly, if, if you count all the Bacchuses and all the the uh, um, the drunken satyrs. Anyway, this is um, a, a fantastic picture called the Drunken Silenus. It's in Munich, isn't it, in the um, art gallery, the Pinacotech there. Um, you can describe it. It's a little bit too close to home for me. You describe it, Bendy. Is it, Wally? Oh, right. Okay. Well, perhaps you could tell us why. I mean, uh, we have the drunken Silenus. Silenus is the friend and and teacher of, of Bacchus, the Greek god of wine. Um, and he's, he's sort of uh, lurching forward, supported by various fauns and and old ladies who are still yet offering him more booze. And he's very red of cheek. Um, he's naked. He's got a very, very portly belly. Um, the only bit of him we can't see is a vine leaf has crept in by good fortune just in front of his penis. And yet at the same time, I think we're supposed to observe um, that he definitely wouldn't be um, performing in bed at that particular evening because he's had too much to drink. And behind him is a very a cast of, of other rogues and, and people. Uh, there's a lovely depiction of grapes, probably by someone like Snyder's beautiful still life painting there. And uh, although it is probably intended to warn us about the, the perils of drinking too much, in through Rubens's eyes, it just seems to me that this is actually um, a bit of a celebration. You know, it was okay to have a good drink with Rubens. I bet he had uh, plenty of, of happy times when he was drunk. Yes. Um, the chat with the, with the big belly. Um, look, 
I'm not going to say that that his shape looks a little bit like mine because that was obviously <laughs> clearly untrue. But I suppose, uh, you know, if, in a foggy room, if you're in a sauna or something, and there's loads and loads of fog, you might possibly make the mistake of thinking that I am shaped a little bit like him. Uh, it'd have to be very foggy, of course. Um, Need a bigger vine leaf, though. Yeah. <laughs> no, the vine leaf is, is, is would have to be. I mean, I think you're thinking more, you know, sort of banana leaf or something is what you'd uh, you'd need. Um, it's a fantastic picture, isn't it? You know. Rubens can paint flesh like no one else, can't he? You just can feel the oily, slippery nature of it, and there's this just wonderful um, sense of skin. He's the best paint. He is the best painter of fat. Of course, everybody always says it's the women that are fat, but the men they do pretty well as well. Um, and he uh, captures all that. And so, yes, it's poor old drunken Silenus sort of swaying with all these grapes around him and group of, of fans and adoring, running the gauntlet of, of, of fans and adoring drunken people. And there's a couple of things that really stand out for me. The, at the front on the left, there is a woman who's clearly the worst for wear, who's got two kids. She's breastfeeding both of them simultaneously. So they're both hanging like little dogs or something from her. I mean, it's not a, not a very charming image of breastfeeding. I mean, it, it emphasizes the slovenly nature of the image. Um, but the other thing is the, the blonde woman at the back. Can you see um, on the right, there is a blonde woman looking very fresh-faced and, and not drunk, actually, just smiley. That's Helen Formal. That was Rubens's wife at the time, wasn't it? His second wife when he, after his first wife died. Isn't it, um, isn't it his first wife, Isabella Brandt? I think it's Helen Formal. I think, isn't it a blonde? I think it's his first wife, but just given a blonde barnet. Um, Is it? Yeah. Well, okay. Um, anyway, she's, she's a sort of fresh presence, isn't she, in it? She doesn't look as if she's been affected by the same kind of um, drunken squalor that everybody else has. Um, what I do know, though, you see, is because Rubens kept this picture, didn't he? He never sold it. It mm. used to hang in the, in his chateau yeah. um, right toward the end. So I've got a feeling it, it it would have had a personal meaning for him of some sort. Um, and see, my fantasy was that there was something of the self-portrait about the drunken Silenus, and that perhaps the um, there was something of a portrait of Helen Formon about the young blonde woman. Um, I mean, I could be completely wrong about that. The, the idea that it was a, had a personal meaning, that gives it an enlargement to me. Yeah, no, I think the, the presence of his wife, whether the first or second one, I think that's you know, one of the reasons I don't necessarily see this as a sort of moralizing picture. It was like some of the ones we've discussed so far um, about the perils of drink. I think it's more of a celebration of, you know, look at these lovely grapes and they produce lovely wine. And we, we might totter about a bit and, and, and make sad mistakes with, with beer and wine. But overall, we can have a good time. And, you know, I'm tempted, like you, to see a little glimpse of self-portrait in the Silenus there. So... So who knows? But he's quite, he's not very happy, is he, Silenus? I mean, I, I agree with you. Everybody else is happy, but he isn't. He looks rather as if the cares of the world are sitting on his shoulder. There is a seriousness to him, and it gives the picture this curious tilt in another direction. So if, if, he, if he was a happy bunny, you know, with a big smiling drunken face, the picture would be a different picture because it would then be unquestionably about joys of decadent drinking too much. But there's, there's just this thoughtfulness at the centre of it all that, oh, you know, typical brilliant Rubens just, just adds, adds another dimension to it. Yeah. Well, Waldy, if, if you see yourself in there, then obviously we must take your emotional response to the picture as, as the one of the most validity here. <laughs> oh, you uh, teetotaler, you. Um, okay, listen, let's add up the scores. 
Let's do it. We have. So that's it. I've done it. I've added up. How, how's it going, Bendy? Um, I've sent mine in. And uh, Taya, are you ready to reveal? I am ready. I've got the list. And at the bottom, with six points, we've got Rubens. Oh. What? Rubens, a.k.a. Weldy. <laughs> <laughs> Not very Weldy, yeah. Fourth place, we've got uh, Stan with eight points. Oh, okay. Yeah. In third place, with seven points, we've got Hogarth. Really? Yeah. yeah. With ten points, we've got Caravaggio. Oh. The Bacchus is the runner-up. So that means the winner must be... With 14 points, Van Gogh. Well, well, well. Fantastic. Well, it's a great picture. I personally put Caravaggio at the top, but there you go. I love the, uh, love the Van Gogh, of course. Yeah, so not not very cheery, is it? Um, <laughs> so the best scene of drunkenness is the most miserable of all. Um, there we go. Uh, do, you, do you see to have persuaded the world to look at things your way? We must take it easy as we can't lock down. You know, we, we really we can't we can't go out on the lash completely because who knows what might happen. We must we must go softly. But you know, you keep saying to me, "Oh, Waldy, when this is all over, we're going to go on our bucket." tour and we're going to see all these fantastic things that um, we haven't seen together you know you keep saying that to me yeah so um, i'm not going to go with you if you don't drink what the hell are we going to do in the evenings oh, well we'll talk about art and have a lovely time and you know and bond well, i'm guzzling my beautiful barolo in rome all my fantastic Rioja in spain and you're just staring at me over mineral water that's no use at all is it <laughs> You know, there's other things I can do. I can eat lots of cheese. That oh, makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah, that makes me happy too. Anyway, those joys await us, I'm sure. Um, fortunately, when it comes to pleasure and joy, we don't actually have to wait till the end of the lockdown because there's a way of getting some of that right now. On the Wall Bendy on the wall, where uh, you and I scour the world of art for beautiful, wonderful and interesting things that we'd like to possess or own or look at some more. Uh, and in your case, you stick it on the wall in your castle. Uh, and in my case, at the moment, I'm going to take it down the pub, I think, and put it on the, or have it some, maybe outside the pub um, and enjoy it from, uh, from a table where I'm guzzling away at a, at a pint of beer. So what are you going to start off with? You mean you're going to trade it in to clear your tab? <laughs> <laughs> Don't um, have trouble. Wait till you come to it. But yeah, we'll see. Um, th this week, well, I'm slightly cheated, actually. For my on the wall, I have chosen something which has been on my wall already. Um, it's a portrait by Thomas Lawrence, uh, it, for my money, probably the greatest British artist there ever was, a portrait of a fellow called Gerald Wellesley. And it's uh, what we call a kit cat. It's a, it's a sort of slightly more than half-length portrait you, you see down to his waist. And uh, Gerald Wellesley, he's he's just left school. He's just left Eton. This is what they call an Eton-leaving portrait. He's about 18, and he's looking very handsomely off into the distance. And he's got sort of tussled blonde hair and a lovely... Uh, 18th century stock around his neck. This is a painting um, painted in about 1808. And uh, the, I came across this painting. It played a very uh, significant role in my, my adventures in art history, Wildy. I came across this painting back in the days when I did imbibe. I went to a drinks party at mm. Christie's in London, and it was a charity do. 
I very nearly didn't go because I don't like going to these things, but for some reason I did go. Um, and there on the wall, it was part of a sort of preview of the British Pictures sale. And bear in mind, I'd never been to an auction house before, really. And there on the wall was was this painting. And uh, on the frame, it had a sort of old-fashioned gold label, which said, Gerald Wellesley by Thomas Lawrence. And I thought, that's a very handsome thing. I've heard of Lawrence. But on the label next to it, it said, Portrait of a Gentleman Attributed to George Henry Harlow. Harlow, I later found out, was a pupil of Lawrence. And, and I was struck by the disparity. I thought, well, hang on, they must have got this wrong. What, why are the two labels different? So at that point, I didn't really know anything about um, how you catalogue a picture. So I spent most of my time at this party, as I tend to do, looking at the pictures on the wall rather than uh, circulating around the room. And I just thought this was a rather captivating picture. It was quite dirty. You couldn't really see into it. Anyway, so um, I went away with it lodged in my mind and I looked up the auction catalogue and I saw that uh, one of the reasons they, they thought that it couldn't be by Lawrence or indeed of this fellow called Gerald Wellesley was the fact that they couldn't find a record of a person called Gerald Wellesley painted at around that time. Now, um, I had a bit of a scratch around and found that Gerald Wellesley did in fact exist, but the reason he didn't look up in most of the sources was because he was an illegitimate son, so he didn't count in all the records. He was an illegitimate son of a fellow called Marquis Wellesley, who was actually the Duke of Wellington's older brother. So anyway, to cut a long story short, I decided to um, have a punt on this picture because I also found out before the sale in the Lawrence archive at the Royal Academy, I found a letter where he specifically referred to painting this fellow, Gerald Wellesley, and it's all set out in quite quite good detail. So, so I knew that this was in fact, a painting by Lawrence, and it was this. So this is my first sort of art discovery, mm. and I luckily managed to get the picture for not very much, um, and cleaned it and established it as by Lawrence. And I, I absolutely love this thing. And this is a picture that really got me hooked on, on going to auctions and and trying to make the occasional discovery. So I mm. had it on my wall for some years, and uh, unfortunately, the wall it was on was a rented wall, and the time came when I had to have my own wall, my own home. So the picture had to go up for sale. And um, it was the, the deposit for my for my house, my first house. And I've I've really missed this picture, Wendy. Um One of the reasons I I never really enjoyed being an art dealer was because I I hated to let things go. So um, as the lockdown is ending, and our little window of opportunity to have our own secret on the wall gallery where we go and uh, pilfer pictures that belong to other people is closing, um, I want to have this picture back just for a few weeks. And it'll be like the old days. Oh, Bendy. Do you know what? For you, I think, this will be like looking in a mirror. You know, this isn't a painting. This is a mirror. This chap, right? I mean, oozes some upper-class confidence. And look at that outfit he's wearing. I mean, that is pure Bendy. A kind of dark moss green top with gold buttons that thing around his neck that kind of silk scarf um but above all that expression on his face that that eaten like expression of the world is your oyster you know this this is you bendy you weren't buying lawrence you were buying yourself here every art dealer buys himself is that the expression um <laughs> so what he was the nephew of the Duke of Wellington, is that is that what he was? Is that that's is right, that right? Yeah, but because he came from the wrong side of the blanket, as they say, that he he didn't really feature very much, and he had to go off to um 
the northernmost parts of the Indian Empire to make his own fortune, which he did actually quite successfully. Um, mm. And as he came back to enjoy his enrichment, uh, very sadly, he died on the return journey. So the the picture kind of another reason why it was miscatalogued, it sort of disappeared into the into the, the family system mm. and nobody really knew who he was. You know, that must be so exciting, though. I mean, I, I buy the odd thing in auction, but I don't, I'm not looking for sleepers, as they're called, aren't they, in the way that you are. But that must be an absolute thrill. I mean, I've, I, to, to buy something which everybody else thinks is something, and then you, you make clear it's, it's something else, I mean, that's a, that, that must give you such a buzz. It must be a real joy. When, how, how many of these have you done in your career, then, these sleepers, do you reckon? Um... Well, I've been very lucky. I've found quite a few. Um, I, I haven't counted. I haven't kept a score. Yeah. So I, the answer is I don't know. But um, Let's, Can we find one together then so that I can have a bit of that thrill as well? I mean, I'd love to have found something like this in an auction. Well, I, I do um, keep my eyes peeled for a, for a miscatalogued Dobson for you, Maldi, but to yet to, yeah. yet to find it. But I promise you, the moment I do, I shall be sending it your way. Oh, how exciting. Well, well, that, that's wonderful. What a great... I mean... Art, art, buying art. I mean, there's nothing better, is there? If you've got the money, my, what a joy it is. Um, and I envy you that. And, and I, I think it's wonderful that it'll be going back. I know exactly what you mean about, about looking at things that you've got rid of and then regretting desperately that they ever left the house. Mm. I'm the same. I can't, leave, I can't get rid of anything. Um, and, and it must be wonderful to see an old friend like this, your old friend, um, you know, Mr. Wellesley, hanging back up there again in, in, in a suit that, you know, let's be honest about it, you would love to be wearing. You know, that's definitely that would be very touching. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I've, see, I, because, uh, yeah, in, in our drunken booze special, um, I've gone back to something. See, I thought I'd go back to the interview, to, to something that um, Lloyd Grossman, the MasterChef um, man, uh, said in an aside, he mentioned architecture, mm-hmm. and he said that how he didn't even he admitted that Bernini wasn't as good a, an architect as Borromini. Mm-hmm. Right? I agree with him entirely on that point. For me, Borromini, uh, Francesco Borromini, was the greatest, probably the greatest architect ever. Actually, if you, if if you stuck me in a corner and forced me to opine, I would say he's the greatest ever. But it so happened that he coincided with pretty much uh, entirely with Bernini in Rome. And while Bernini was getting all the big gigs, you know, and getting all the popes falling over themselves to employ him, this weird and difficult, fascinating genius, uh, Borromini, was getting more of the scraps. I mean, it's not as if he didn't build anything, but he never had the, the, the success that Bernini had. And yet he had such a, a fecund and, and, and brilliant imagination. So I've mean, got, you know, I've just chosen um, a little arcade that he, he built in the Palazzo Spada in Rome. I don't know if you know this particular piece of architecture. I sent you a picture of it, so I'm, I'm presuming you've got that in front of you, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What do you know about this thing? Uh, not much. I haven't seen it, but I, as soon as you made me aware of it, I wished I had seen it. It's, it's, it looks absolutely fascinating. How? Let me ask Taya this question. Taya, how long do you think this corridor is? Um, and as a rough guess, see the statue at the bottom there? How tall do you think it is? I'm so bad at measuring distance, but let's say 20 meter distance and the statue, I don't know, three meters or something. (laughs) Well, the statue is less than 30 inches tall. The arcade is about four meters long. 
So what this is, is an illusionistic arcade. Borromini was given this job to build an arcade in this tiny garden at the Palazzo Spada. And what he did is he created this fantastic Baroque illusion. So the what looks like a, an arcade disappearing into the distance is actually a, hit, you know, a hill. You sort of go up a hill, as it were. And the columns are not spaced normally. They're spaced tighter and tighter and tighter towards the end. So everything here is an illusion. Uh, it's made to look as if it's a massive, big arcade plush and all that. But actually, it's, it's in this tiny space. And when you get there, it just doesn't feel possible how short it is uh, compared with how long it feels. And see, I, I put it up there because in, in many ways, it's untypical of Borromini um, because it, it's a very Baroque thing to do. I mean, it's very showy. It's exciting. It's trickery. It's some of the things that Bernini himself might have done. But Borromini, who was a much greater architect than Bernini, um, this was like something he threw off. I mean, this was like a little thing he did just to show that he could, a little sort of detail of his genius. Um, and if you are in Rome the next time you go, when we go and, and I'll be drinking, oh yeah, I'll be drinking all your wine because you'll pass it over to me. I'd so want to show you this because it's an exquisite thing that, that doesn't got any of that Renaissance purity about it. This isn't, this isn't about about anything logical or graceful or or indeed you know built on the golden section this is a fantastic little baroque trick that just gets your heart beating when you when you when you see it so yeah borromini what a wonderful architect and uh, what a kind of antidote to, to bernini so that 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 is going see what i'm gonna do with this right when i go to the pub to have um, loads of drink uh tomorrow and the day after and possibly the day after that mm. um now that pubs are open in england i'm going to put this outside the pub in a place where I can see it. So when I'm looking up from the beer garden, this will be there. Um, and it'll just cheer me up as I'm drinking away and throwing myself into the pleasures of life. This will be an addendum to that. So it's me, Borromini, the Palazzo Spada Arcade. Um, and of course, you can come along as well, Bendy, if you're around. And when you get blind drunk, you could probably try and crawl down to the end of it and get, <laughs> get stuck. But the good thing is you don't have to crawl very far, you see. That's the whole point. In a normal arcade, you're crawling, crawling, crawling right down the bottom of here. You only have to crawl a bit. So, Waldy, when you sent me the photo to this, and I was thinking, what's he going to do? He's going to he's going to chisel that out and take it to his flat. But I don't. I couldn't understand where you would put it in your flat because your flat is. I can see again. It's so enormous. It's like one of those Italian palazzos. You've got you've got the picture <laughs> gallery stretching away behind you. You don't need any false perspective there to make things look bigger than they are. Well, you've acres and acres of space. Yes, well, I'll talk about a pub here. You know how cramped some of these pubs, you know how, how sometimes the outdoor spaces, mm. you know, where you, the little gardens, are just they're just too cramped. You haven't got enough room to drink properly. So that's where it's going. It's going in there. So whatever pub I'm at at the time to make it feel a bit bigger. Um, I think that's a very giving of me, actually. This isn't this isn't just an on the wall for me. This is this is an on the wall for all the pubs I'm going to go to over the next few weeks. And talking of which, I better get out there and start doing that. So I think uh, it's be a hasty goodbye from me from this drunken booze special of the Wardy and Bendy show, and a very sober cheerio from me. Wardy and Bendy.